welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I love your substack. Uh, you're a fantastic writer. Your voice is so bold. And I was shocked in researching you that you're not a trained journalist, that your background is actually as a musician and you wanted to be a geneticist. So I was hoping you could talk us through your process of how you landed here as one of like the primary voices on the forefront of fighting the sham show. Thank you so much. It is so kind of you to say that. Well, I did actually work in the media for about eight to 10 years. 
and uh, mostly I worked uh, for the indigenous publication called In uh, Indian Country Today, which was awesome. It was really, really wonderful. That was good media. And it was at the time when people could talk about things for the most part. So that was wonderful. But altogether, if you want to hear my story, so I did grow, I was born and I was raised in Moscow. And I witnessed the fall of the Soviet Union. I was still a kid. And that was amazing. And at the time, it felt like freedom, finally, we'll have the Western music and we'll have all the, now we can see what we want and censorship is obviously bad. And all that sloganeering and talking points and the, you know, party line shaming is obviously bad and freedom is obviously good. And here we go again. Uh, <laughs> people have forgotten. But even more ironically, as I grew up, I realized that even that was fake. So it's kind of like a layer, you peel a layer, and then underneath there's something fake, you think it's true, you peel it, underneath there's something you think it's true, then it's fake. So that freedom that I experienced, that absolutely wonderful, authentic feeling that so many people felt when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was actually the sound of multinational corporations clearing the markets and moving in. And that was just... A revelation to me because I mean to this day the memory of it is awesome. I mean it was just so happy, people finally breathing freely and talking and saying what they want and all this intellectual activity. And people believed that politicians were honest. And can you believe that? Everybody, well, not everybody, but so many regular people thought, okay, communist politicians were obviously horrible. But now we have all those politicians like in America. Haha. -ha. <laughs> Yes, that was correct. <laughs> so, but I did music since I was five years old and I did classical piano and all that. And that that's precious to me. And I love the music of Bach. And then of course, when the Western music was allowed and all the rock and roll and, and had a band and uh, it was lovely. And then uh, I came to the States. Well, I was also in Tibet a little bit doing research and linguistics and that wish to be a geneticist. It was when I was about 11. Uh, the genetics was very different back then, but I, I really wanted to understand the world from every perspective. Yeah. And so so when I uh, came to the States, I realized that, well, I actually need to feed myself. So then I uh, went to school for IT, worked in IT a little bit, and then I was very excited for a couple of years. I thought finally I'm normal. Finally, I'm no longer weird. I'm no longer that weird kid that everybody's saying, okay, what's with that philosophy? Get your head out of the cloud and like get real. I was so enjoying that corporate gig for like a little bit because I felt like I belong. <laughs> I finally belong. And then it didn't work. It just like it wasn't me. How long were you in the corporate gig before you realized that you couldn't fake not being weird? Uh well, a couple of years. I mean, I stayed in there longer because money, obviously, and all that. But uh, yeah, that was. A, I was very. I was very excited when I was going to school for computers. I was. I loved it. I, I loved it, and like the whole thinking process, thinking things through. And again, back then, I guess it was more human in a way because it, it was coming from your brain as opposed to just from, from what I hear today is horrible. I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's what I hear in the industry. But so. So then, and in parallel with working in IT also, I happened to marry an abusive guy uh, who I met in Chicago. And that was 
that was ugly. At first, it was. I, I, he, at first, he was very sweet, and then he became abusive in a classic manner. So that was very, very ugly. And then, in parallel with realizing that I didn't really do on the corporate world, I also was dealing with abusive marriage, which it was a very dramatic story. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole of it, but it was very dramatic. And so, through that, I learned that it's not good to betray yourself. So that was my lesson because like a very, very, as a young person, very, very young person and very uh, naive and idealistic and believing that people are good and all that. I just, I could not figure it out. I could not admit to myself that it was abusive. So it was all horrible, but uh, the lesson was very useful in 2020. It helped me. And so after that, I went back into music and uh, that didn't pay. <laughs> and because it didn't pay, I also started working in the media, which was it was very, very, very lucky thing uh, that Indian country today, the, the publication, they were looking for people, they were restructuring something like that. And so I was a part of the very vibrant team, like native people and non-native people and just just intellectually wonderful and fresh and and we covered Standing Rock. We were the, the only one, only ones covering it more or less for a while until, you know, it was okay in the mainstream. So, and then Google and their friends ate not only music, but the media also. And that threw me into researching oh, big tech really. I, I started researching big tech about 2013, 14, something like that as a musician coming coming from the music standpoint because they ate musicians first right and all of a sudden musicians who are making money were starving even you know like musicians were never outrageously rich outside of the really big famous ones but there was a middle class you could tour sell whatever sell music and then all of a sudden people stopped paying for music and that was, by the way, Google ploy. This whole information wants to be free was really Google ploy to steal people's information and to trick the public into thinking that like musicians or creatives are the enemy. I mean, that, that was a whole other thing. So, and so I started researching big tech and I was thinking, oh my God, that's really horrible. And there's this transhumanism and it's creepy and the chance is maybe sometime after my lifetime, they may actually try it. How horrible. And then I started writing about it and making music about it. But I did not imagine that the danger was imminent. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a philosophical trend developing and I was screaming from the rooftops. And frankly, nobody cared at all. People would go, oh, you know, musician, get a job. Stop whining. And that was a standard reaction. And... And I was all about, but, 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 but transhumanism, but people, but look, but Google, but look, look, look. And everybody was like, oh, shut up. I mean, not, they wouldn't say shut up, but didn't care. And I was thinking, if they try to apply this business model that they kill the music industry with and the news industry with, as far as like people actually producing the goods, right? I mean, they, they put them to starvation. And if they try to apply this business model to say medicine, to doctors, to lawyers, to politicians, I mean, politicians are not my concern really, but to, to like agriculture, then we're screwed. It doesn't work. It just destroys the thing. And 
they're doing it right now. So the perspectives are not really wonderful. But going back to 2020, when 2020 started happening, I mean, I was almost immediately, like within weeks, I, I was, within a couple of weeks, I was like, no, this cannot be real. Because at first, like everybody, we had no idea, maybe it's a horrible plague for real, but like for a couple of weeks, you know, stop the curve, whatever, flatten the curve. But then everything that was happening was exactly what I was researching. Like all the things that Google wanted to do, all the things like make great, uh, take education online, surveil everybody, like track. They tried to get a hold of medical data forever, like Google and friends. They they were trying this way from this end, from that end, and that. But then there's HIPAA, and then it wasn't very successful. I mean, they they succeeded a little bit, but little. And then after 2020, oh my God, they got everything they wanted, and then a hundred times more. So that made me realize it was a scam. And also my experience with abusive, uh, like with abusive marriage and all the drama and all the pain, it really paid off because for years I had no idea why I had to go through that. And I was, I mean, I really didn't know because it was horrible and like, why did it, why did it have to happen? I didn't understand. And then when 2020 happened, like, oh, I get it now. So, and then the rest is history. I wrote, I started writing my Substack uh in april 2020 so essentially against the whole health policies and i mean i did it philosophically because that's how i think and that's also easier to talk to people if you don't barrage them with like ah so it's easier to be like, philosophical and uh at first i think my first one was sent to like a few people just a few people and i just did it i i started substack because my website was already getting shadow banned and i was thinking I'm going to completely screw it up if I continue writing on my website. So let me just get a separate platform so that I don't completely like kill my platform on search on you know on search and social media. And of course now they're censoring Substack. But and then I wrote I wrote an essay about Great Reset, my Great Reset for Dummies in October 2020. That was a pure desperation because. At that time, only a few people were talking about it and wonderful, like God bless them, wonderful. Like, you know, like Whitney and of course like Cory Morningstar with Greta and uh, Derek Rose was talking about it and uh, James Corbett, but I mean, there were not too many. There were just very few people talking about it. And I wanted to explain things in a way that kind of makes sense to a person who is not really following that, that doesn't scare them. So I wrote this massive essay that is po poetic and you know researchy and all that and suddenly everybody was reposting it and like zero hedge i mean like i didn't even know people were just saying oh i read you on zero hedges i read you here and there and i was like what what are you talking about and and i was like oh yeah i mean like yeah and then it was translated to different languages it was it was wonderful it was wonderful because i was not really seeking like i did it because i really wanted people to hear mm -hmm. and many people told me that actually made sense to them and that explained things to them that, that was very gratifying and, and the rest is history I mean we are part of the battle absolutely I, I have so many questions there are so many pieces I'm curious to know since that essay was reshared so many times and like really put you on the map like how your life has changed and um yeah, like just how you're seeing yourself. Do you define yourself these days as more of a writer? Do you see yourself as an integral piece of the resistance? 
Well, I guess I've been the integral piece of the resistance ever, ever since I was a teenager. I mean, like, I just never really liked the machine. Yeah. But I mean, I don't really see myself any differently than I've ever seen myself. I think it's just, you know, timing. Because I was saying exactly the same things for years. Right. I mean, like, I had my little following with my little band where I made songs about essentially what's happening right now. And it was this little thing. I mean, like, I, I don't consider myself amazingly famous now I mean like we all do what we do but uh I get a lot of emails from people like with re really kind words and that's just humanly pleasant and I often think about the people who when say like they complain they say I mean like they're kind of like me whatever like five ten years ago uh and regardless of you know, the agent then they go oh like I have those wonderful ideas nobody wants to hear and I mean, I'm like, that, 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 that's me some time ago. I, I get it. It's like, you know, like you keep doing whatever you're doing. And it's just like, just keep doing whatever you're doing. You're don't, not doing it to, to, for, the, for the people as far as, I mean, like we all like pleasant things, but ultimately you're doing it because your soul wants that. And that's, time comes and everything, everything works out. Yeah. So I didn't realize that the music you were writing was also kind of a commentary on what was going on in the world. Have you always been oriented towards justice, towards the greater good? Did that arise because of the the fall of communist Russia? Like, where did that come in for you? I don't know. I've always been into trying to understand what life is about. And I guess when you think about those things, the question of justice comes in. I've never been like a commissar type. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I think people are allowed to think what they think. And uh, even if I think somebody's ideas are maybe silly at the time, and like, I don't feel like I'm authorized to go and, you know, wag my finger and say, what are you thinking? These are wrong. I mean, like, this is ridiculous. Right. So I just, and I, I, I have a love for the people because I genuinely feel like, I mean, we are in a way all one, and it sounds airy fairy like everybody says that, but in many, many ways. Like, for example, and this is a very, very new discovery, and I'll get back to your question uh, later, but uh, I realized that if you go 20 generations back, just 20 generations back, and uh, how many direct ancestors do you have? It goes to over a million people. Whoa. Just 20 generations back. If you, It's just two power to the power of 20. And granted, if people lived locally, then probably it's, it's fewer because people would have the same shared ancestors down the line. But even so, so add a few centuries, like a million separate human beings had to walk this earth just to become your direct blood. Direct blood, not just not extended from your direct blood. So how precious are you? I mean, like how precious we are, are all of us, for real. And it's so much life and all, they all lived and loved and solved problems all that and they put their blood into us and we're really precious i mean like so what the obstacles they're this that Klaus Schwab, what not but we really have a job to do here and and that's that's amazing uh, that's a new discovery it doesn't doesn't answer your question but as far as inclinations towards justice i mean i guess uh, I mean, like I've just had them on the emotional level, and I, 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 I like it when people treat each other well, and when they don't, 
I've been well when I was on, on a, uh, when I was much younger I was getting like very upset about it like oh my god how is it possible and all that but now I'm just okay this is the world but I try to do my part to make the world more beautiful it just feels good yeah I love that thank you for doing it oh, I'm absolutely. always curious these days as far as like what is the through line between those of us who see through the sham so clearly and those who don't. And I'm wondering, I mean, I know that you've written about growing up in Russia and rejecting the system and systems people, of course, you know, what happened in Tibet and with the husband and your big tech research around music, but have you pinpointed any of like the defining characteristics that make some of us unable to be controlled or snowed by this sham? Well, I think, I mean, like I have a custom term for that. It's seeing the face of the machine. I think that the people who have seen it uh, know better than to comply. It's not a matter of being smart or intellectually anything. It's not even a matter of information because to be quite frank, there's there have been lots of very intelligent, bright individuals throughout like decades and centuries, kind of just saying it how it is. And people either cared or they didn't, or they cared centuries later. So it's not about information per se, or intelligence as in smarts. I think it's more about emotional perceptiveness. So if somebody knows on the visceral level that uh, believing the abuser is actually more painful than any difficulty you may have to deal with if you fight it, I mean, I think that's what makes it. But it's even more nuanced because I think that it is true for all of us that we all still have our blind spots and delusions because oftentimes people would say like, oh, how can they not see about the vaccines and COVID? And that's, I mean, like, that's understandable. I feel this way too. But then that same person and probably myself and probably ma many people still have our own blind spots where we believe in something that is not true, but it is so ingrained in our identity, how we were raised, that it's very hard to like let go of it. And I think that's the process we all go through all of our lives. We discover, oh my God, I didn't realize this thing that I always thought was just like sacred, true, and that was a lie. And that's very difficult. And I think it takes character and wisdom and even headedness to deal with that. So that's why it unwraps kind of throughout the lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I call it um, binky stealing, like which of our security blankets are we willing to let go of? And I remember, you know, in my experience, I think the last one that I really fought for was like the Dalai Lama and the whole Tibetan lineage and like really availing myself to the fact that it was creepier than I thought. And I'm wondering like, A, from your time in Tibet, if you had any kind of worldview shattering experiences about what Tibet really is and what the propaganda around Tibet really is. And also like in terms of your own personal development, like that last one that you can remember, maybe one of the strongest of like letting something go that you held sacred, be it a hero or a narrative. Does that make well, sense? As, as far as heroes, I think heroes are going up and down very quickly nowadays. So <laughs> what was the last hero you lost? Uh, you know, well, there was probably was something. I mean, I, I really do not idolize people too much or at all. So the last the last actual hero in that sense that I lost was probably, and I didn't quite lose him, but that was the uh, 
rock star who I really liked when I was 13 years old. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that in, uh, well, it's, it's a Russian rock star. And he's lovely. I mean, like, he's lovely. But then, you know, uh, I, I remember, you know, as a teenager being completely pure and then thinking as a teenager, just observing his art, that maybe he's going through some, something dark. And I, uh, through people, through the friends' friends, I passed like some kind of spiritual book to him, saying, tell him to read it. And, you know, but <laughs> I was very concerned about his trajectory. But I mean, like, he, he's lovely and he's human, just like everybody. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, as far as, lay, well, Tibet, well, first, let me talk about Tibet. I did not really go very deeply. I mean, like, I know there's this whole talk, Dalai Lama, his CIA and all that. I think it's actually far more uh, or far less like black and white. I think he's a very smart human being and he has a cause. And people with a cause usually, I mean, like, they go with supporting parties. So if he was hoping that, like, America was going to help him to yank Tibet out of China and help him, he would probably collaborate with it. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I really don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating. But I think that kind of the child mind goes like, oh my God, like, oh, this is all black and white, this good, this bad. Like, but I think in real life, it's usually, especially when it comes to high level politicians and even theological politicians, they're still politicians, so we do politics. So I really did not spend uh, much time like, getting tormented over that uh because either this way or the other i mean like i don't know possible but uh history is far more complex for example my biggest revelation in tibet so when i went there i went there more to work on linguistics and ethnomusicology and uh silly things like uh going into nomadic village and asking them so when i say this and in, in tibetan i used to i forgot the language but i used to speak it so it's like if i tell you this word, what is the first association that you have? And we're like, what? Like, girl, you're on crack. I mean, like, they wouldn't say that. They probably didn't have those words, but it's, I mean, like, what, 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 what like, silly question. But I mean, I did those things, like psycholinguistics and whatnot. Uh, but uh, the thing that struck me the most is how every man was offering sex. And I mean, like, every, not, not a few, not every second, but pretty much every and uh, <laughs> well that was in, in a very direct manner and i think possibly because they perceive like i'm not from their culture and i mean there's no like good manners but it's also a very liberal culture in that sense because my friends like touristy or researchers or male they said women are the same way so i think they're very very liberated culture in that sense i mean like the indigenous people essentially they uh they don't have the prejudice. And historically in their culture, uh, women were allowed to take uh, more than one husband and then men were allowed to take more than one wife, but usually it was in the favor of money. Like men who could afford several wives could get, could have several wives. And then men who could not afford uh, a wife would partner, like, you know, a couple of brothers would get a wife. So it, it, it still worked out in favor of men, but... <laughs> But very, very liberated culture. Uh -huh. And, but then I was there to study language. I mean, like, really? And everybody was offering sex. I mean, like, it was amusing. Uh, at some point, it became annoying, but not like annoying. Like, I'm not politically correct. I don't care. I mean, like, I can talk about anything as long as people don't like try things. 
but uh and i was laughing because you know american tourists were like oh so spiritual all that and i'm like yeah but it's not like there's anything unspiritual about it but it was just funny and then but then uh on a serious note going back to uh history so for example right now there's this whole uh image and feeling well, in the in the west and in tibet itself but in in the west in particular like tibetan buddhism this pure wonderful spiritual thing and i'm sure in many many ways it is but uh the way it was introduced to tibet it was the seventh century their king sonsen gambo he had a couple of wives uh indian chinese so and for political reasons he decided to convert his people from the traditional uh belief it, you know, it's called bon but it's essentially like indigenous their own indigenous belief and he told now everybody become buddhist right. and it was the same conversion like uh conversion to christianity convert i mean it was blood people didn't want it people were just fine doing whatever they were doing they were not seeking to be converted and so it was a political thing it was not anything like it was just purely political because he wanted to be seen as more civilized he wanted to have allies politically so it was bloodshed and abuse mm -hmm. uh, to the best of my understanding just like any other conversion and it also changed the social dynamics because for example prior to that tibetans were very fierce like very fierce like men warriors really fierce and i'm sure some remained but then with the monastery culture where families had to give a certain amount of children to the monastery and it's it's like it pacified them but it also made them more vulnerable to invasions and things like that so it's it's very very interesting to think about it and then when uh the chinese invaded and by the way people in tibet they're grieving it when i when i was there it was some time ago uh so it wasn't like last year but they they were great. They love Dalai Lama. They love him. They love him. They, I mean, like they absolutely love him. That's not propaganda. They love him. They grieve it. And they absolutely grieve that entire situation. I mean, they, everybody was complaining about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I mean, like everybody, wherever I go, people are really, the people really love the Dalai Lama and they really like, they, 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 they feel like they're under invasion. They don't like it. And at the same time, the kids, were counting in Chinese, like numerals, like basic numerals. I mean, they would still speak Tibetan, but they would, and that's, that's that, I mean, that was also intentional politics because uh, when the Chinese invaded, they also changed things a little bit in the Tibetan language, like grammatical, like like little changes, like the Bolsheviks changed the Russian language to some degree when, when they had the revolution. So so that there would be a separation, like language would be a little different. And and then, of course, they would allow Chinese men to go and take a second wife like the Tibetan. I mean, they were trying to really destroy the culture. Yeah. And and that's that's treacherous. That's horrible. That, that's uncool completely uh, bloodshed aside but again so when buddhism was introduced it was bloodshed when chinese invaded it was bloodshed so it's it's like human beings are funny this way indeed um yeah it's always confused me regarding the the dalai lama's lineage where it's like but you guys came from genghis khan who destroyed the bond and you know ordered everyone to never practice their you know sacred shamanic rituals again and i'm wondering like where in that trajectory he became elevated and i'm not sure if you know it's just like kind of a lingering question i have as you know for me i'm realizing everything i've been taught about the world is a lie like 
all of it. So for me to be intellectually honest, I'm just calling everything into question. Like, what is the thing with this Dalai Lama lineage? Um, and what is that really about? You know, I'm not sure if you have any inside information as to like where along the way it went from like plundering colonialist genocidal murderers to like spiritual leaders. Well, I mean, the Chinggis Khan was much, much, much later. The, that forced conversion to Buddhism from Bonn was in the seventh century. Chinggis Khan came like centuries later. So that was not related. Oh. Uh, and that was... Uh, well, I think, I mean, I really do not feel qualified because I think he, like human beings are funny. Uh, again, it's some things in Tibetan Buddhism, especially Nyingma, which is an older school. And by no stretch of imagination do I consider myself an expert in Buddhism. I mean, like I studied it formally and all that, but I mean, it's it's much, 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 much deeper than. Uh, so I want to qualify it. I'm not an expert in Buddhism at all. I'm just talking like my own understanding and experience. But uh so the buddhism became especially the older schools they're syncretic they took a lot of things from the old religion i mean it, it just became a part of it and i think these are probably the most practically interesting aspects of it and then on top of it came the whole philosophy and intellectual tradition and all that but to the best of my understanding the tradition that is theirs it really didn't make it quite to the west because our minds are conditioned differently and i heard like even people who genuinely like high ranked and i'm not talking about specifically dalai lama or specifically gilukpa which is his his school of buddhism i'm talking about the like general like i i don't want to name names and and he's no longer in this world but from what I heard, a very like big high level uh, teacher, uh, authentic Tibetan, he could not, he could, he had to change the way he taught here because people just did not, like the brain was conditioned differently. So he had to do it in order to get through something, but it was very different. So it just tells us that that intellectual conditioning that we have here makes many people like it takes probably a lot more to get through that. And I am sure just like with any other world religion, like my, my overall feeling about it is that we have, I mean, there is creator, there's our relationship. It's all authentic. I mean, we, we have it. And whatever culture we're born into, we, we use what we have. Like we can be given a good theory or a bad theory or have good, have bad or like truth or lies or mix of anything. And of course, the more the more authentic it is, the easier it is to get to reality. But we manage anyway. And good people make their own. I think each of us has our own version of it. Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, you name it. Like Shintoism, any, anything. And Shintoism is probably, I mean, I know next to nothing about it just the, the basics but so but we really have our own religion each of us and then there are common words that people use so we bond over that but people use whatever emotions they have and people who want to do good they find they essentially found their own version of like good christianity good judaism good hinduism good buddhism and then people who want to do evil things they use the same the same things to do bad things and that's just how it is. And 
So I have zero judgment towards people. I mean, maybe they believe in some things that are like that were made up or that are incorrect, but they nonetheless manage. The spirit is real. Like the creator is real. The spirit is real. So they, they manage. And so we're in this absolutely mysterious place where talking points live on their on their own planet and then reality lives on another. We just deal with it. Totally. Yeah. I'm wondering from your perspective, because it seems like, I mean, you're going super deep into to what's going on, is how much Christianity is playing a role in this and the like old school, you know, idea of Jesus as the son of God and our savior versus this like Jesus and the Magdalene were actually married. And if you see that as kind of being part of what's playing out now, especially in light of how many people on, you know, a certain perceived side of this have all of a sudden like embraced Christianity hook, line and sinker. Uh, I try to be very, very humble about it because I live my own faith to me and other people's faith. It's between them and the creator. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I really don't go into that. I think ultimately, I do not think that the creator discriminates. I don't think the creator decided that these people are better, these people are worse. And uh, I don't think the creator was into genocide, like in the name of anything. And genocide has been done in the name of many things, including world religions. So I think that if people find strength, from whatever faith they have, whether it's institutional, traditional, non-traditional, good for them. I mean, if it helps them resist this current abuse, good for them. It's beautiful. Uh, in my ideal world, people would dig deep and understand that, for example, the abuse done uh, against the indigenous all over the world, not just in this hemisphere, but everywhere, including in Europe, including in Asia, many, many centuries ago, that that was the same beast. Mm -hmm. And if people use talking points from Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or whatever it is, if people said that God told us to go and kill like that entire nation or whatnot or steal from them, that that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. that, that was political, like just political uh, trick. And and I think it may take a very, very long time for people to realize that because it's like the society steals respect from everybody and then it gives a little bit more to this group, a little bit less to this group. And it says you're superior because you pray in a particular manner. Like, look, those people are obviously idiots because they don't pray like you. They are like dirty. And that's the same trick. It's the same thing as saying anti-vaxxers are dirty. That's absolutely the same thing. But it's very hard for people to, to see. So... It may take personal revelation, personal experience, great luck, maybe centuries to come. Sooner or later, I think all those lies will be shattered. But again, it 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 has to take time. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, because I look at things multidimensionally about, you know, like as above, so below. So on how many different dimensions is this playing out and what are you know, what's really going on versus what we're being told and you being from Russia specifically, like with my limited knowledge, I've been in the quote unquote conspiracy community for a good 22 years. And one thing that I've noticed is 
it's pretty anti-Semitic, you know? So I'm always wondering like, why, why, why? So I got deep into the Hazaria narrative a few years back. And I know that there's been, you know, centuries and centuries of beef between Ukraine, Hazaria and Russia. And I'm wondering if you being from that part of the world have a different kind of lens of perception as to what's actually going on right now between Russia and U Ukraine, or maybe it's exactly as they're presenting it in the legacy news? Well, as far as uh, ethnic prejudice, I think people are prone to ethnic prejudice and I personally strongly dislike it. So whenever somebody says that any issue can be attributed to ethnicity, uh, people in power in that ethnicity, and it doesn't matter which one, I mean, because that changes over centuries, People in power stay in power and laugh all the way to the bank with people in power from other ethnicities. It's the people on the bottom who get trashed and killed and for no, for no reason whatsoever. And it always works this way. So whenever people allow themselves to say that, oh, this is the this or the that or this ethnicity or that ethnicity, like any, and you, you can pick any. Again, it doesn't really change anything as far as the power structure at all. Nothing, never. Yeah, but it it allows it justifies people bent up anger and frustration, and it just channels them towards that particular group of unfortunate human beings who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it never fails. So that's ugly, and uh, I think I mean like it's just ugly. It's universally ugly. Ethnic prejudice, like any other prejudice, like blaming something on anti-vaxxers. I mean like it, it's prejudice. It's it's not right. Right. And uh, as far as historical. Uh, well, again, I think nations are like human beings, they're relationships. And yes, you know, back centuries back, the Hazarian state or, or nation was at war with the Slavic nations and it was all complicated and it was a war like any war. I mean, like people who fight, they don't like each other. That's, and some nations probably carried it from that time to the current times. But again, like it's so twisted. I think it helps to be humble about it and realize that historically, like everybody has been at each other's throat a like hundred times or yeah. more. Like even if we look Tibet and China, they will, you know, now Chinese on top of Tibet, there was a time when Tibet was like really the, the stronger one. And so it goes back and forth. Or like, for example, uh, the Slavic land was under, you know, the Tatar Mongolian people. And to this day, I mean, like I have a little bit of a, like, I'm mad that it happened. Like I'm mad that it happened. I'm mad that there was this all this rape and pillage, and it was centuries ago. I does it doesn't mean that I don't talk to Mongolian people. I mean, like they have nothing to do with it. But you know, historically, it's just. I mean, it's. I think it's hypocritical to say that human beings don't have like feelings about those things. Human fe beings have feelings about it, and the honest way to go about it is just to talk, like talk, talk, talk. Say okay, okay, like. You bastards, what did you do? And what did you do? But I mean, like, do it, like, from the heart with with a purpose on healing, which is easier said than done. And I know that people get triggered by propositions of love. They go, what are you talking about? Love. Like, it's, but it's it's the only way. I mean, like, you can try to continue with the domination. Like, one side wins, one side loses, then centuries pass by, and then another side, a third side. But it's just a vicious circle. So love is really the only way practically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard it takes like forever, 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 but it's the only way. So as far as Russia and Ukraine is just heartbreaking because 
these are there was a time like 11 centuries ago we weren't even two different nations the same ancestors like we come from the same like if remember how i was saying million million people walking 20 generations ago so go, go, go back so it was probably fewer people but we had the same ancestors we are we are literally one family literally one blood at some point if we go long enough and so this thing is just ugly and this empire like both my homelands are empires they have very similar ambitions and it's like a beating mobs i can't say that one is better than the other uh, it 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 was very bad and wrong to instigate it as the west did with the purpose of instigating it with the purpose of making it happening and then it was very wrong and bad on part of the russian leadership to do that I mean, like invasion is an invasion i mean you can't like how however you slice it's an invasion and and then there's this eastern and western uh, it's just a mess it's it's heartbreaking and i feel it's one of those are, are irresolvable things and i honestly think that at least from the side of the west they really wanted to establish the never-ending conflict like in the middle east like it would be just ongoing war all those military contractors are fat in their cheeks laughing all the way to the bank collecting all the money and people are paying with their blood the the ukrainians primarily of course and then the russians and then normal people regular people and then creating this hatred it's ugly i mean there was no hatred before and i'm sure there, there was prejudice like people especially you know ukraine east and west culturally different but the things that the intelligent agencies from the west tried to create and i'm sure from from russia as well because they're with one another they are not good people on either side but that that creation of hatred i think that that's a spiritual crime i mean there has to be justice for that in this way or the other because where there was peace and maybe some prejudice like you know like your language is funny your language is funny like you yo 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 but i mean like that's one thing but creating bloodshed out of a situation where there was none that's not right yeah totally how what is it like for you being a russian in america right now have you gotten any guff for that oh you know what i paid attention to that years ago when it just started happening well first there was cold war right but then i wasn't i was like i wasn't here and uh and it was a long time anyway so then i remember when i came here and laughing with my friends about oh that once upon a time there was a cold war people were so stupid how could they be so stupid ha ha funny like yeah those people they were stupid and then here we go again so i don't really interact with people who would be inclined to like give me crap for being russian if they start then i just roll my eyes and like go somewhere else i mean like life is too short for that yeah and so i mean like i don't really feel it i'm sure that i mean like i know that it's happening it was happening for some years now even before this war started and it was ugly and stupid and uh i feel no kind i have no kind words to say about rachel maddow for example mm -hmm. because she single-handedly created this whole not single-handedly but she was a big contributor to this whole hate hate your russians campaign yeah. And now it comes out that the whole Russia gate was actually a lie. And now they're saying it, but nobody cares anymore. It's like on the bottom of the news cycle. It would be big news five years ago. But that's how they do it. Yeah. I'm so I, I 
like, I have the inclination to ask you about your experience with censorship and to go in a completely different direction. And I'm also being mindful of the time. I really want to know about your podcast series title, Make Words Great Again. All right, superstars, this is the part of the podcast where we step away from the public platforms to move on to our membership platforms. As you are enjoying this conversation, as much as I am enjoying having it, I encourage you to find the second half over, over, that word was over, on either my Locals page or my Patreon. Thanks so much for tuning in to this latest episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I am reminding slash thanking you to and for (laughs) clicking that subscribe button for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, You can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.